Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly it's tricky to pick the right story to lead with, even in a week where the Aussie coach of Tottenham Hotspur is sitting on top of the Premier League ladder and the Socceroos are days away from their first ever visit to Wembley against England. This week, it's a no-brainer. After the breathless journey the Matildas took us on during the Women's World Cup, it's of course the launch of the A-League women's competition with a standalone fixture of fixtures just days away that demands top billing. Will the sugar hit translate into genuine change? Will the crowds turn up? The TV ratings shift the dial. Are we going to see faces on the pitch on billboards and the trajectory of the women's games continue to skyrocket. Is it too much to hope for? Someone who is well-placed to comment as anyone in the country is ESPN, Stephanie Branch. So stick around as Edge and Willem pose the question shortly. Then while other clubs have taken the headlines in the Premier League, one that has a two-speed economy in the English men's and women's top flight, while Chelsea boasts a cavalcade of stars in both teams, their women's team has kept the trophy cabinet full courtesy of Emma Hayes' side winning seven of the last nine titles and the last four in a row, while their men under Maurizio Pochettino are finally showing a pulse after back-to-back wins but still anchored mid-table. We'll talk to the Athletics' Liam Toomey a little later to see if this is yet another false dawn to ignite the post-Abramovich era or if this squad of highly paid stars is finally turning into a team at Stamford Bridge. Edge, you're about to head off from Bangkok to London. It's been a huge week. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the women's uh, A-League commencing shortly, but uh, uh, it, it's it's exciting times for, for football in this country. The first ever visit to Wembley. Yeah, it's been a huge week as uh, we prepare to, uh, my team's preparing, uh, the, the people that I work with, to uh, welcome some uh, Australians into London for what's going to be an incredible journey for them. They're seeing, not only are they seeing the Socceroos play England at Wembley and um, uh, the match against New Zealand, they're also seeing Tottenham play Fulham um, at Tottenham's ground. They're seeing a League Two game. They're, um, they're heading to an NFL match as well that's in town at the same time. So they're in for a great tour. But, yeah, obviously it's just huge build-up to the, the Socceroos match against England at Wembley. And there's been a lot of discussion about who's in and out of squads. We'll talk with that with Willem with Socceroos uh, Central and Matilda Central a little later on. But uh, but also, Rob, my week's been preoccupied with the start of the A-League women's competition mm. because, as listeners would know, the ones that listen regularly, that I work with 13 of uh, the players in the A-League women's competition, and they are all getting to the nervous Nelly stage. They're just uh, days away from um, um, all their hard work during pre-seasons and NPLW seasons and players that are experienced been getting themselves ready for the start of the season and we're about to explode. And every, everybody is um, has a bit of anticipation, Rob, about this A-League women's competition um, mm. because of the legacy of the Women's World Cup, whether it will, as you mentioned, translating to more viewers and more attendees. And I'm looking forward to talk to Stephanie Brantz in a moment. But I, I must say, I know I'm talking a lot off the top. I don't normally do that, do I, Rob? But I must say. No, never, never. Never. I must say, what about Arsenal? I did imagine to – it kicked off at 11 p.m. time Bangkok time and I did imagine – did uh, was able to keep my neighbours awake uh, through the second half as Arsenal got on top of – Manchester City look very vulnerable, but why don't we? Why don't I shut up? Why don't we throw to Derek, who's over there in London, 
our great mate Derek Dyson, who's on the show regularly. He's having a holiday in London. Let's just see his temperature as he's walking to Emirates Stadium. He colloquially refers to as the Highbury Library. And we'll see whether you notice the difference between Derek's persona before the match and after the game. Good afternoon, gents. It's Derek here from London. I've just got out of the tube station and I'm walking to Emirates Stadium in what is an extremely unseasonably warm day in London. I'm walking through Highbury Fields. There are people with their tops off, people having picnics, sleeping on the grass. A perfect day for football. I don't ever remember going to a game in a T-shirt in October, though. That's a different issue, I think. Uh, On to the game. Well, I've been thinking about what is a good result for Arsenal. Clearly a win is a good result for Arsenal. But looking at the history of this fixture, recent history in particular, this hasn't been a very uh, happy fixture for Arsenal. And I think it's lots of losses. Of course, there was the win in the Community Shield. Reading Sable and Will. Um, but obviously, uh, City will be keen to make up for the two defeats on the mark the bounce with a result here and of course we want to go above a certain Tottenham Hotspur who sits astride at the top of the Premier League at the moment. Um, I think there is some hope for Arsenal, no Rodri is a good thing, we'll be hopeful that Saka is back, I don't think we've had an update on his fitness yet. Um, obviously there'll be plenty of goals in this game, obviously won't finish nil-nil. Uh, I wonder if a draw is a good result for Arsenal. Would I take a draw now? Yes, I probably would. So, yes, let's see what happens. Anyway, I will touch in after the game and give you an update uh, after that. Hello, boys. I'm just outside the Emirates Stadium. Arsenal 1, Manchester City 0. An absolutely amazing game of football. I was absolutely relegated or consigned to the fact that it would be nil-nil after I said it would never be nil-nil. But the goal at the end there, deflection, Martinelli, who the fuck cares? Absolutely sensational. The mood here in North London is profound. I'm so glad I came down here for this game. Uh, Do you know what? With about five minutes to go, nil-nil, I was starting to think I might have taken it. But the goal went in. Do you know what? On balance, probably Arsenal deserved it. They definitely showed more intent in the second half. So from uh, the Highbury Library in North London, I'll uh, see you boys in a few weeks. Cheers. Well, there you go. How about that? Um, Derek's uh, had a wonderful, wonderful return to the Highbury Library or Emirates Stadium. His team, Arsenal, getting the job done against the reigning title members. And Willem, Manchester City, they're just looking a little bit vulnerable now. Two on the bounce they've lost. They're plumbing the uh, the lowly depths of third edge. Haven't been as far down uh, that way towards the end of the table in quite a long time. But I was just thinking, and maybe I'm not thinking of having heard Derek just there, but would there be just a little sour taste in his gills? He heads home for the first time in a long time. He watches his side's best win in a long time. And who does it benefit? Tottenham, who go top. They've made their best start to a season since 1960-61. After eight games, they are first. Uh, they edge Arsenal by just the two goals scored. Uh, they found their trip, Rob, to Luton Town very bloody difficult on many fronts, uh, but did ultimately come away with the points while down to 10 men. Uh, they're going to be glad to uh, to put that one behind them. But yeah, Arsenal, fantastic win. They'll savour that for a long time. Tottenham, a scratchy win. They'll, yeah, 
they, they won't want to think about it too long and hard. But yeah, even when the uh, the sun shines for for the Gunners, Tottenham are first. Uh, and Willem, we should mention that um, obviously Luton Town, the away section there, not very big for the away fans because of the size of the stadium. But if you look closely in the away stadium section, because uh, Australia's in town, the national team, there was quite a few familiar faces in the away section. And I'd imagine that Ange Postacoglu had had to rustle the administration at Tottenham, wiggle the tree and the tickets <laughs> fell out because there was about 50 Australians all connected to Ange's mates and so forth. And they would have had a great time uh, in the away section at Luton Town at, at Kenilworth Road. What a, what, a, what a fantastic day for everybody connected with Ange Postacoglu who's over in London at the moment. But Thank you, you Rob. Now to Mr Gilbert. Yeah, exactly. A banana peel, though, because obviously, you know, Luton Town had been um, criticised from pillar to post by a, a lot of the leading pundits in the game, didn't deserve to be in the top flight. They'd be going straight back down. <laughs> Next thing you know, they go to Goodison Park and they beat Everton. And that was a, a good, solid win, admittedly against the side, uh, Sean Dyche's side, who were under the pump, but then bounced back and had a win themselves. So you thought it's going to be a dangerous game. And I, I didn't watch the game start to finish. I watched the the, the mini-match. And you thought when uh, when Spurs weren't able to take those early chances with Rich Richard Allison in particular, um, that it could come back to bite them and then the send-off. But uh, they were resilient, and to their credit, I know I'm going to expand it on it a little more in stoppage time, but uh, they, uh, you know, good sides win when even the luck uh, is favouring the other side at certain times. So it's just, it's miraculous. I know we've made comparisons to 2015-16 and Leicester City for various other teams in various competitions over the journey, but, you know, it's sort of feeling like, can it keep on going on? So, you know, I was so glad for Derek, though. I, I did turn my notifications off and uh, wanted to make sure there weren't sort of an abundance of messages from you, Edge, uh, where, when you're sort of watching games in hours that are convenient to you. And I thought if there's 20 messages from Derek overnight, I know who's going to win. So it was fantastic to watch the, the well, again, the mini-match package and and uh, and Del get the results. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that more. But I, I guess well, you've got a few other news stories. Well, and we better get through it. We're sort of uh, we're waxing a little lyric on extending the opener this week. Yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave the Premier League aside for now. Liam Toomey's going to jump on a little bit later. The biggest story of the week, arguably from a geopolitical standpoint, is the awarding of the 2030 World Cup and what that means for the 2034 World Cup beyond that. We will hold that until World Cup corner while we still have a, uh, an entire segment uh, carved out for that particular reason. Uh, but there was a, a domestic cup final uh, played here in Australia as well across the weekend. Sydney FC are Australia Cup champions for the second time. Uh, they came from behind to defeat Brisbane Raw 3-1, off the back of a Fabio Gomez double. The Raw had taken the lead through Thomas Waddingham's fourth goal in five cup appearances and would be pretty disappointed, you'd think, to have been overrun before 15,400 at Allianz Stadium. That is a fourth piece of silverware for Steve Corica. Edge, the first three came pretty hot off the back of the Graham Arnold era. He's had to work really hard for this one. Uh, three years between drinks, first since 2020. Uh, if you listen to certain parts of the fan base or even certain people in the press, he might have been hard up against it to keep his job at various stages last year. But this looks like a, a you know a, a renovated side. He looks like he's got his foreigners right with Lolly and Mac here for a second season. They'll be better for the run uh, last campaign. And now the two Brazilians in as well. He was on this uh, program last week speaking about them, Gabriel and, uh, and Gomez. Uh, this looks like a, yeah, a revitalized side and always nice to lift a bit of silverware. Yeah, Brisbane packed some punch in the game, didn't they? And they did get ahead, but uh, I think the quality of Sydney shone through um, in the second half and they were able to get the job done. So congratulations to Sydney. If they don't 
win uh, the Premier's Plate or the Championship. It means that they'll uh, qualify for the AFC Cup uh, next edition, not the current one, obviously, uh, which is something uh, that uh, the winner of the Australia Cup gets to enjoy. So well done to Sydney SC. Just another trophy in the cabinet for that uh, impressive A-League club. It seems funny to say, but I think this would have meant a little bit more to the Raw than it would have to Sydney, Rob. And the way that the Australia Cup final is uh, distributed is very Mickey Mouse. Uh, So the Football Australia looked at Suncorp, unavailable, Ballymore under renovation, Redcliffe capacity under 10K. So they had to give them or had to give it to Sydney uh, in previous, uh, previous iterations. People might complain that they'd been too keen to give it to Sydney over uh, sort of other venues. So yeah, poor Brizzy, as we spoke about, they lost the NRL, the AFL, and now they have missed uh, a home final and have ultimately lost this as well. Yeah, the hat-trick, but look, I guess uh, they've only got themselves to blame. They came out of the box. Um, Thomas Waddingham uh, scored, I think, four times in a row uh, leading up to and including that game. There was a, a wonderful moment with his mum and dad, uh, and it just shows how new to the whole thing that they are, that his mum was up there in the stands filming it on his iPhone. So, you know, it was a lovely story emerging, emerging and, and he's obviously a name to watch for uh, uh, for future, you know, green and gold representation if he, uh, if he can continue to, to find the back of the net the way that he does. But, uh, um, yeah, look, how often have we and, and every other uh, person in the in the media in this country talked about facilities and and stadiums? Uh, Allianz Stadium is, is a beautiful stadium, world-class facility. Uh, and if we're going to play it at a, at a, a venue that uh, is of that stature, then – and, and – there's not a similar venue available in Brisbane, then it's a bit of a no-brainer. I don't think we can put this one down to Football Australia. It's just the, the nature of infrastructure in this in this country. Very cool. Uh, we'll head off to Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Big week for the Socceroos. Saturday morning in the early hours, a clash against England at Wembley, followed by a midweek meeting with the Soccer Ashes on the line against New Zealand. If this trip came a touch too soon, a reminder that packages are available for January's Asian Cup in Doha. Edge and his team know that city like nobody else, so head to ggatravel.com.au and sign up without delay. We did get the result that we, or particularly I, wanted Maslawongo Edge. He is back in the fold after five years of being overlooked by Graham Arnold. He made himself too hard to ignore with his form for Ipswich Town. He and Cam Burgess playing in a 4-2 win over Preston on the weekend. That has been some sort of uh, resurrection for a guy who spent so long injured, uh, stuck in the mire of where championship clubs find themselves when they're sort of bottom half. Look, um, fantastic for Massimo. We've had him on the show. He's a lovely man. Um, he's just been a fantastic ambassador for Australian football. And he did fall out of favour with uh, Graham Arnold for reasons that only will be able to tell us. But uh, it's fantastic to see him back. And um, at his best, he's good enough to play for the Socceroos and he might play a role in uh, one or both of these matches that are coming up because he's fit, he's in form, he's scoring goals, he's um, he's doing all sorts of wonderful things with, uh, with the tractors, Ipswich Town. Uh, so Ipswich a second, Leicester a first, and good news concerning Harry Sutar, he's back in as well. 85 minutes and a 2-0 win over Stoke. Uh, the reports from the local press were that he was solid defensively, if a touch toey on the ball, but that'll uh, that'll correct itself as he feels a little bit more confident uh, back at the level. And to our Matildas, Hayley Rasso scored her first Real Madrid goal in their 5-1 midweek win over Real Betis, backed it up with playing the first hour in a 1-0 win over uh, Villarreal. Uh, of the other big-name Matildas to move in 
the offseason, taking a little bit longer to bet in. Kyra Cooney-Cross made her Arsenal debut fleetingly last week, but then wasn't required in match day two. Steph Catley laying off an assist in a two-all draw with Man U in that one. Uh, Claire Hunt and Tegan Mike are yet to get rolling at PSG or Liverpool. But Mary Fowler back uh, Rob from uh, Montpellier and now at Manchester City. Uh, she has been playing pretty consistently. They had a draw uh, with Chelsea and Sam Kerr, who came off the bench. Yeah, well, that's good news. Must have been uh, somebody from Manchester City watching uh, the World Cup and uh, and Mary's uh, efforts because she certainly was one of our Matilda stars during that tournament. So good to see. All right, boys. Well, look, I'm going to uh, sit on the bench for this next chat. Uh, Stephanie Brands is one of our favourites on Box to Box. Uh, she never loses her enthusiasm for football, and she's one of those people that uh, you know was a voice and played the part in in winning uh, the Women's World Cup in that broader diaspora group of of, of voices, women in particular. Um, in in putting football on the on the uh, the pedestal that it uh, that it won during that tournament. Now it's the next phase. Can women's football go to that next level? Can it trade off the success of the Women's World Cup? It'll be fascinating. I'm going to sit back and listen to you to talk to Steph Brands next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. In the lead-up to the Women's World Cup and right throughout, a familiar refrain ran that Australian football must capitalise on the opportunity at hand and drive the game forward. This Saturday, we get our first look at top-flight football in the country post the success of the Matildas with the return of the A-League women's competition. To work through some of the major storylines, it's a pleasure to welcome back Stephanie Brandt of ESPN. G'day, Steph. How are you going? Hi, guys. How are you? Good to see you all again. Likewise. The Matildas and the Women's World Cup, what happened a couple of months ago, will never be forgotten. But as we turn our attention towards the summer, we'll start with the pessimistic one first. It doesn't quite seem like there's a great deal of coverage outside of the places that you would expect to get it. No, not a sort of deal of additional coverage that we, we might have, had hoped for. Is that a, a fair comment? Have you felt a shift in interest or debate or discussion? Or is this perhaps like the Matildas were at the World Cup themselves going to be a bit of a slow burn? I think perhaps it's uh, it's disappointed a few people because we thought that momentum was there for women's football. And I believe that momentum is there. It's just different to what you see at a World Cup. Everyone watches a World Cup because it's a, it's a huge event and one on home soil is perhaps for some people a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see that sort of spectacle and that theatre in their own backyard. You can't expect the domestic competition to to reflect that. What it has done is increased awareness and uh, certainly while I'm still struggling to find a lot of information on the squads, particularly when we're in that time of the the year when we're doing previews and things like that, uh, I'm finding that there's a lot more uh, information and news stories and and. Uh, social media around our players who play overseas. So the interest in women's football is there, but it's naturally, I think, progressed to to following our Matildas wherever they are around the world, which is not a bad thing, but hopefully by the weekend uh, the, f- the focus will be very firmly back on what's happening in our domestic league because there's a lot to look forward to. It's just it's not World Cup football, but it's top-flight elite women's football, and, and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. This is the second season of expansion under the APL. We've got the Mariners coming in to be the 12th side after uh, over a decade out of the competition. That takes us to a full home and away season of 22 games each plus finals. We're going all the way through to April. For those in and around the league, do do you feel or does that bring a level of legitimacy to the competition that perhaps wasn't there when for so many years we had what was nice, but it was ultimately just a, a sort of 14-game burst that came and went all too quickly? 
It did. I used to say it was the blink and you miss it uh, season. If you're off for a couple of weeks, you'd missed a quarter of the season. Uh, so now we finally have that home and away season. And Michael and Adam, if I'm talking too much, feel free to interrupt me because uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, take over your program. However, it's uh, a, a wonderful thing to be able to say that we have a, le- a legitimate season. And I don't think you could say that if each team wasn't playing each other at home and away. So I think that's super important. Uh, I think also that new expansion side, Central Coast Mariners, they've been out of the competition for too long. Uh, The Central Coast, it's always been that little club that could. uh, And the men certainly have shown they're the little club that can. There's a a buzz around that up uh, on the coast and and Gosford's ready to embrace their women. I think that's going to be super exciting. The fact that Kai Simon is coming back to almost where it all began, uh, and to see her back out in the park when that happens, and we understand that may be a couple of weeks away. Uh, But I think there's huge excitement around that. And on a real high point for them, they'll be playing all all their home matches at Industry Group Stadium, and I think that's so important for that consistency, that continuity, and the fans know where it's happening and when, and I think that's crucial for them. So I I think it's super, and and, and hopefully the even number of teams uh, means that it's a a much more balanced competition and perhaps easier for everyone to see uh, that it's, I want to say, more of a level playing field, but there's been so much movement that we really don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be great. It is going to be great. Let's talk about one of the clubs that's uh, shocked everybody with a bit of news uh, this week, and that is the Western Sydney Wanderers have dumped their coach, Kat Smith. Um, she, a Victorian, went up to Sydney with great um, um, great pedigree. She's been involved in national team programs, been a, a hardworking uh, student of the game for a long time. And um, most people, independent observers, would have thought that she – had a bit of a pass mark last year. She was inheriting a pretty ravaged squad last season. Steph, what's going on with the Western Sydney Wanderers? How do you just dispose of your coach a couple of days before the start of the season? There must be a story there. You've got to feel like it was looking pretty bad. And look, my understanding is that it was loss of the dressing room and things just weren't gelling pre-season. And you would have to think that's come to a head for it to happen so close to kickoff. I think that's the big shame about this. If they were going to part ways with Kat, I would have hoped just just from a, a pure planning perspective that it would happen in the off-season and therefore a new coach could be brought in. They could be signing their own players because the uncertainty for those players that Kat's brought in uh, for, for the picture that she saw the season was going to unfold as. Uh, there must be a lot of, uh, I think, uncertainty for those players particularly and, and also for their fans as a whole. They, they just wonder what on earth is happening. It's it's extraordinary to have it happen so close to kickoff. And that's uh, nothing off uh, Robbie Hooker. He's a he's a great coach and I think that he'll he'll do a good job with what, what he has. But uh, I feel like in a, in a year where we've seen one of the most successful, if not the most successful FIFA Women's World Cups on home soil. It's an extraordinary story to have one of your your women's coaches flicked so close to the start of the season. So I I really feel for Kat. However that's unfolded, it's never nice. And I know that coaches are aware that this is something that can happen. It's not the most stable employment in the world, is it? But uh, I I do feel for her. I feel for the team and and I hope they can regroup to to really get it together within the next, (laughs) what are we talking Five days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, look, it's, the obvious thing to mention is that there's not too many female coaches in the A-League women's competition and to lose one um, and obviously murky 
surroundings. Nobody really knows what's going on. Um, there's a hint of the, you know trouble in the dressing room for sure. But yeah, that was a big one. And Western, just another sort of um, um, chink in the armor of Western Sydney because you know everybody expects that that women's program should be firing more than it does. So they're definitely on watch, aren't they? We're going to see how um, they start. I noticed they lost the Newcastle Jets uh, in a preseason game last weekend. We'll see what turns up in, in the first round. But I, I just want to go through each club and just rattle off the, the key signing that each club's made, Steph. And I want you to pick two players out of the key signings who are going to have fabulous years. So obviously at Brisbane, it's Tamika Yallop. Canberra, Maria Jose Rojas, we know her quality. Central Coast, you mentioned Kaya Simon. Melbourne City, Rebecca Stott, she's back in the fold. Melbourne Victory, mm. Rachel Lowe, the star from uh, last season's final series for Sydney FC. That's a big move. Mm. Newcastle Jets, Melina Ayres, she's she's a gun. Uh, she's gone up to Newcastle Jets. Perth Glory, Grace Yale, uh, the New Zealand international. Fiona Warts, who made that big impact at Adelaide, has gone to Sydney FC. Annalie Longo, who was for such a long time uh, a very key player at Melbourne Victory to Wellington Phoenix. Vicky Bruce, we don't know a lot about her, but she was one of the players that Cat Smith had brought from England to Western Sydney. Mm-hmm. And Grace Maher went from Canberra to Western United. Give me two players who are going to star for their new club, Steph. Oh, wow. Sorry, that is super hard to do. <laughs> it is hard, isn't it? I- I do think that uh, the last mentioned Grace Ma is going to have a really interesting role to play in Western United, and we're told she'll play further back in the formation. Yeah. Uh, she is going to be uh, uh, always going to be a talent. I'm really looking to see how she develops out of that that Canberra bubble, if you like, because she'd been in that that comfortable uh, home, if you like, uh, there. So I'm I'm super keen to see how how she does. As far as stars go, I, I think it's really difficult. Rachel Lowe's move from Sydney FC is a really interesting one. I think she could be fabulous uh, at at Melbourne Victory, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, Jeff Hopkins deploys that team. Uh, you only asked for two, but Stoddy uh, back at at Melbourne City, I. I love her story and, and I think she's going to be great, if not, uh, you know, a starring role than, uh, than just a really good person to, to have around the team. But um, how about Maria Jose Rojas or Code Rojas uh, coming into Canberra? What can she do with Michelle Heyman, who's going for all sorts that of... That is exciting, records? isn't it? That's really interesting. Yeah. They could form a very, uh, you know, if they play a dual striker four four two, which is everyone's expecting them to do, uh, wow, they'll... Um, you know, that could be an incredible partnership. And noticeable mentions to Lydia Williams, who's uh, returned to the A-League women's competition at Melbourne Victory. And, of course, Courtney Vine, uh, not a new signing, but she's staying <laughs> at Sydney FC. She's a superstar. What does that say yeah. about A-League women's competition that Courtney Vine, you would assume that she would have had opportunities to go to Europe um, or other places, maybe even America, um, but she's decided to stay. Uh, and um, I'm just drawn to that amazing image from a couple of weeks ago when she went to one of the private schools in uh, Sydney and that photo from a drone above where she was just being swamped by a sea of kids. It was fantastic. What does Courtney Vine staying at Sydney mean for the A-League competition? I think it was absolutely crucial because apart from the players that have have signed to come back, like the Tamika Yallops and the uh, Emily Gilnicks and Kaya Simons and those sorts of players, Courtney Vine having such a breakout tournament and then deciding that she would stay in Australia just says to the rest of the competition, this is a good place to play my football. This got me to the point where 
I became a star at a World Cup. It is a place where you can grow and you can develop your game. And and I think that's absolutely crucial. It's not saying she won't go somewhere in the future. And we know that players like Clara Kenny cross took a while to be coaxed overseas, even though they had plenty of offers. Uh, I think Courtney will have a number of years where she can do that, but it was very important. I think for the for the A League women to be able to say that she was staying, it's it's such a good advertisement. She is. I don't know if any of you have met her. She's an absolute delight, uh, very humble, and really refreshingly natural when when interviewed and and in front of a camera. She's such a beautiful advertisement for the women's game here, and now she's a superstar. She's going to, you know, t- uptick the uh, the crowd numbers at, at Sydney FC women, and and she's perfect for the game and and you look at I compare her to sort of uh, the same situation as like a Claire Hunt from Western Sydney Wanderers who has gone to to PSG and good on her because I really feel like for these players you take the opportunity when you can get it uh, and it and it takes quite uh, a strong will and and that strong temperament and a real mental will to want to stay put and enhance what you have at home when there's that lure overseas. So good on board. I think she's going to be fabulous and I hope she just builds on what she did at the World Cup because she is uh, an extraordinary human being as well, player. Final one before we wrap, Steph. Is there any stopping Sydney FC? Never missed the finals in the competition's 15-year history. They've played in seven of the last eight grand finals. These are numbers that put them right at the pinnacle of any Australian professional sport. Ante Juric remains. Uh, five grand finals have gone, as you've mentioned, but uh, Courtney Vine stays. Fiona Watts comes in. Are they shaping up as as the best URI? Do you know what? If you'd asked me last season, the season before, or any of the 10-plus seasons before that, I would have said yes. This is the first season that they've had to make a significant amount of signings and they've lost players the likes of uh, Charlie Rule, Mackenzie Hawksby, Sarah Hunter, Della Harp. Their their midfield has completely changed. Uh, They've lost uh, Anna Green, retired, of course, and Shay Evans went up to the Central Coast. Rachel Lowe, a huge loss. Uh, And uh, Anna Kostajic, of course, has gone to... um, Perth, which you would expect with with Dad taking over over in the West. But this is the biggest turnover that the Sky Blues have seen since they started. They can do it. Of course they can. They always know how to how to win games and how to be a success. Fiona Watts is a, a fantastic signing. Uh, they've they're gonna have to have much more assimilation into the season than they've ever had before. Normally uh, I've always said that Sydney FC surprise and delight by re-signing most of their players before the end of the previous season and, and they managed to keep that continuity around the squad. Uh, this is completely different. So I think this will be a real uh, test of of what they've got as a club that, that if they can bring these these women all together to have that, that coherent sort of style of play that we've been used to with Sydney FC. Of course they can do it, but they're no longer the shoe-ins that they have been in seasons past. Not for me anyway, and you can take what I think with the hill of, as a hill of beans. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Steph, awesome to chat. Let's hope that the interest in the Matildas does start to cast a, cascade down to our national competitions. I think we've said once that once or twice in the past, but you've got to believe. Uh, we'll keep across all of it via uh, your copy in ESPN. So thank you once again for your time. Thanks, gents. Great to see you. Enjoy the season and hopefully we'll chat throughout it. Steph Brantz there. The A-League women's kicks off this Saturday in F3 derby to start with the Mariners up against the Jets. Hang about on Box to Box. On the other side, Edge is going to stay, Rob's going to sub in, and Liam Toomey's going to join us to tell us what is going on at Chelsea. <laughs>
Hey, hey, it's Chemist Warehouse time. You can, uh, where I can see you dancing, guys, up, but up. what about a bit of... That's it. But Woohoo! That's what I needed. Stock up and save right now at Chemist Warehouse with big brand vitamins like Microgenics Vitamin D3, 1,000 international units, 200 capsules, just twelve ninety nine, and Wagner Sleep Well 100 capsules for fourteen twenty nine. I do vouch for it. It works. I take one before I go to bed about half an hour. Helps you get a good night's rest. But Edge, if you need to wake up, you need the no-dose Awakeners. That's what I need. I sleep like a baby here, but I need a bit of action in the morning. Get me awake. Seventeen ninety nine. That's what high, cost you. High potent caffeine. And Willem, uh, the multivitamin, you're a young man, but uh, the Centrum Multivitamin for Men or Women, 90 tablets, $24.99. No, no matter whether you're old or young, you can always look after your health, Rob. With a bargain like that, I'll be straight in there. Exactly. Remember, in addition to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, you can order online and click and collect to save time or choose fast delivery. For same day, home delivery, T's and C's and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chatting with Stephanie Brantz just a, a moment ago about the, all the excitement around the women's A-League competition starting off in the shadows of what was just an incredibly successful Women's World Cup on home soil. But we crossed to the other side of the world and one of the well, ongoing success stories in Australian football plays at uh, one of the biggest clubs in the world. I speak of Sam Kerr, of course, at Chelsea. And while their women's side have taken all before them over the past decade, uh, the team that used to hold the mantle of uh, the number one club in England has fallen on harder times from a men's point of view. We're going to cover both areas uh, uh, in our next chat. And of course, that chat is with our good friend from The Athletic, Liam Toomey. How are you, Liam? I'm good, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me back. No, not at all, mate. And uh, we'll start off with with the uh, the Chelsea men's side, and uh, and I, I didn't anticipate when we set up this conversation that we'd be talking about uh, a winning streak of two games in a row, uh, which uh, in the Chelsea men's world, uh, in the post Abramovich era, is uh, you know sort of quite the success uh, after the you know the uh, revolving door of, of coaches. Uh, uh, I suppose the question I wanted to ask you in in the wake of the transfer window closing um, uh, is is Maurizio Pochettino starting to to get a tune out of this squad? They've they've let a lot of um, of, of excess baggage go um, under the Todd Bowley area. That they thought you could just sign up anybody and you'd create a team. Is Pochettino starting to to craft a side that can uh, can start to to challenge? Honestly, I think there were signs of that even when the results were bad. Um, and and we wrote this on the athletic in a, in a couple of different ways, but the the underlying metrics for the way Chelsea were performing were pretty healthy in terms of the goals they were expected to score, expected to concede. They were near the top of the league in both categories, um, and you know controlling the ball. I think there were there were lots of signs that that Pochettino was building um, a, a team that can compete in this league at, at a high level, but. The process was slowed by the the lengthy injury list that they have, including several key players. Um, and I think they've they've had a little bit of bad luck in some games as well, conceding at bad times and and obviously missing some guilt edge chances. So they they needed something to turn for them, um, and it, it it felt like that did in the EFL Cup tie against Brighton. That was a really hard fought win. 
albeit against a slightly second string Brighton team, but they, they, they got that one over the line. And, th- and now these, these back-to-back away wins over Fulham and Burnley, um, you, you can just see the confidence in the players. And, and, and as much as we talk about the, you know, how, 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 how tactical and, and almost scientific football has become at this level, it's still a massive confidence game. And I think you could see that the results early in the season had had hurt this young squad a bit. Um, and there were a few players who weren't feeling as good about themselves as they were in pre-season in the US. But I think these last, these last couple of games have really changed that. And you saw for the first time, I think, against Burnley at Turf Moor, they really looked to be enjoying themselves on the pitch. Uh, and, and and I think now they, they go into a run of games after the international break where they play, I think six of their next seven are against teams above them in the table, including some very big ones, starting with Arsenal. But they go into those run of games with a bit more momentum and confidence. And I don't think you can just say uh, with with certainty that they're going to struggle in those games. I think I think they can they can really attack those games and play well. And a player who, who seems to, to signal that confidence uh, as a representative of the rest of the squad, uh, Raheem Sterling. Uh, he uh, you know he he was um, cast off. In, in a way as uh, as past his best from the Manchester City squad, but uh, but picked up with Chelsea, came to London. He's a London boy. Was very proud to to, to come um, uh, back home and and play for Chelsea. But uh, at the point he arrived, they were clearly going through the greatest turmoil in the, the history of the club. And uh, and the next thing you know, he's he's left out. Uh, well, he was injured when he was first left out of Southgate squad, but he, he's struggling to find his way back in. His performance uh, over the weekend was uh, was indicative of the way that the rest of the team setting up goals, scoring one himself. That old Raheem Sterling seemed to be back. Yeah, he was sensational against Burnley. He was he- heavily involved in all four goals, and it really felt like once Chelsea went a goal down, he he bent the game to his will mm. uh, in in the way that you expect difference making attackers in the Premier League to do. Um, and that that was the way he started the season. In truth, the, the first three games he looked really, really good. Even though Chelsea's results were, weren't good, then he went off the ball slightly. He had that uh, off the boil slightly, rather. Um, lost his place in the team. Mikhailo Mudrik um, showed some promising flashes, but the way he played against Burnley, I think he's he's absolutely undroppable and. He, he offers something that is in fairly short supply in this Chelsea squad, which is high-level experience. Mm. He's been playing in top Premier League teams for a decade now, more than a decade. Um, so I, th- I think you're seeing that although he hasn't worn the armband this year and he doesn't seem to want to be in that conversation, he, he does have a leadership role within the squad. I know a lot of the attacking players in particular really look up to him. Um and and I think he's he's playing up to that status now. I think it, it's only a matter of time before he gets back in for England because hist- historically Gareth Southgate has loved him as a player, mm-hmm. uh, and I, th- I think he he just wants to see those performances again. And it and it looks like actually being left out for England has benefited Chelsea because it, it's it's put an extra fire under Sterling to to get back to this level. 
Mm, mm, yeah, it's interesting. You know, either uh, either makes or breaks um, players at any level, and at that veteran stage where ego is is very uh, much a, a factor, the um, the fact that it's uplifted him and uh, he's found something within himself is uh, probably a testament to his character. Before um, Edge. Um, discusses the the women's game because obviously from an Australian point of view with Samantha Kerr uh, that's a, a topic that we're all eagerly interested in uh, off the the, the park uh, the Todd Bowley era has had a very wobbly start um, they they seem to think that you know you can own some American um, sporting teams and have great success there and just transfer the same model over to the UK and we'll employ Graham Potter and we won't sack him and he's you know got a, he's on the tenure as he needs the next thing you know he gets uh, uh, he's marching orders so that they've learnt a lot are, are you getting a sense that um, this uh, a new administration are starting starting to work out um, what it is uh, to, to run a, a top flight um, club in the Premier League well I think they change so much across all departments of the club so quickly over the first year of their ownership that we're only really now seeing things start to settle uh, and 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 the people that they've brought in including the many players that they've brought in start to to get their feet under the table and and really show what they can do. Um, and I th- you know the they brought in all these recruitment experts as well, it, who have really informed the recruitment strategy of the last two windows, which has been a clean break from the first window of their ownership, where it's been a much greater emphasis on all these players under under the age of twenty three, transforming what was one of the oldest squads in the Premier League into, I think, the youngest. Um, so, so much has changed and there was a feel going into this season that Chelsea were a brand new team, a brand new squad and a brand new club in lots of ways. Um, and, and I think you've seen that there is a that, that there is a learning curve to that um, for, for everyone involved. And I think there's been a, a very steep learning curve for Todd Bowley, uh, Badadig Bali, and, and Clear Lake Capital. Um, and at times it's been very public and very painful. But one thing that struck me is that they they are very, very... Um, they're, they're very, very sure of their way of doing things. And that hasn't been shaken by the way last season went and the amount of problems they've encountered in this first year. So they're they're very very confident that everything they've done to the squad has put Chelsea in a better position long term for success. They believe, even though results in the first few weeks weren't great, that that Pochettino is a is a very good choice to lead that project. And I think we still have to wait and see it all play out because in terms of what they're doing with the squad with with so much youth and so much money invested, we've never actually seen this in football on at least not on this scale. Um, and so I, d- I don't think we can prejudge whether it's whether it's going to su- succeed or fail. I know I know a lot of people outside Chelsea have enjoyed laughing at them in the, over the first year, and that is un- completely understandable. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily indicative of what they will be. One uh, element of the Chelsea operations has been doing pretty well, and that's the women's team. Um, they've been really spectacular all through the ownership change, but. For Australian interests, um, obviously uh, through the World Cup, there was uh, a lot of focus and scrutiny on that calf of Samantha Kerr and obviously she missed round one. She came off the bench, had an impact in uh, an unusual match against uh, 
Manchester City. I want to talk about that in a moment. But what can you tell Australian women's football fans about the health of Sam Kerr and um, and how did she look when she came on for the first competitive uh, football of her her uh, season? Well, I think Chelsea are managing her back um, and managing her carefully because she is so important to this team and everything they've done over the last two or three years. Um, and they also have now, which is maybe something we can touch on, another very quality option in Mia Fischel um, to, to, to play up front, who I think has taken has helped take some of the load off Sam Kerr in, in these first couple of weeks, but will also probably help, help spur her on um, because I mean, Kerr only got, I think, 12 WSL goals last season, which was a bit of a drop from an incredibly prolific uh, year before. And I think this is the way Emma Hayes operates. She wants she she wants really high level competition in every area of the squad, and in the long term, that should be good for Sam Kerr as as much as anything in terms of helping her get back to her best level. I mean, she wasn't. I don't think she was, uh, you know, at at that best level against Manchester City, as you mentioned. It was an unusual game with them going down to ten men with the lead, and and, and Chelsea having to really be patient to, to to make the breakthrough and eventually getting it in, in dramatic circumstances. But I, I've always got the impression with Chelsea women that, especially in these early weeks of the season, it's less about the performances and, and more about just the points that they're they're able to bank. And I think they you know it was a close game against Tottenham to to begin the campaign, a, t- a tough away game against against City that in isolation, if if you didn't tell them City had had a man sent off, I think they would have been very happy to come away from there with a draw. So they, at the end of it all, you look at the table, they've taken four points. They've already got an advantage over Arsenal, who have been probably their, their fiercest rivals over the last couple of years. And they're in a good position to, to attack the rest of the season. Let's just talk a little bit about the game uh, on the weekend because the uh, Manchester City captain... Greenwood was shown a second yellow card for time wasting in the 38th minute. And um, for those people who keep an eye on uh, the social media around the women's Super League, it set it alight. There was a lot of con- a lot of debate about um, that send off, and it also set the city players a lot too. There was three very quick yellow cards for descent straight after the sending off. So um, why, don't you, why don't you paint the picture? It was quite an extraordinary little five minutes there for. Uh, that game, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen a player uh, sent off for time-wasting. Well, no, I don't think I've ever seen a player booked for time-wasting in the first half. I know. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's not that it's never happened. I've seen teams do that against the Chelsea men's team in the first half where they're taking long, a long time around goal kicks and, and, and restarts. But usually the referee gives a bit of leeway until the second half before they start considering that a bookable offence. It's one of these things that is is rarely refereed purely by the book and more about the referee's feel for for what's happening. And okay, City City had the lead, but it, it didn't feel like a situation in which um Alex Green would, would be super motivated to to waste time. Uh, yeah, so it was a very, very strange one. I can't remember another situation like that. And clearly when that does happen, it has an emotional effect on both teams. And you probably you saw an immediate emotional reaction from, from the City players who were pretty outraged by it. And 
it would have given a lift to Chelsea as well. Um, but yeah, very surreal moment in, in what was, as you say, an unusual game. And Liam, what's your assessment of the legacy of the um, Women's World Cup? Obviously in Australia, it's very visceral for us because we lived and breathed the momentum that Australia built through the tournament. But um, in England, you know, um, the, the women's team making the final, a lot of Chelsea players very prominent in that team as well. So tell us um, what's been the, the legacy of England's performance at the World Cup for the Women's Super League? I think it's I think it's set the WSL up to take another step forward in terms of profile, in terms of coverage uh, from media and, and, on, and visibility on social media and all of these things and attendances in stadiums. Now, I know the... The attendance at Stamford Bridge for the Spurs game was, you could maybe look at that as a bit disappointing, but I think that has to be viewed within the context of Chelsea putting the prices up, not to profiteer, um, but really following on from what Emma Hayes was saying last season in that you have to put the prices up in order to put a greater value on the product, as it were. and also to reflect the cost that it takes of staging games at, at, at big Premier League stadiums. Um, so I, I think it is it is set up to be the biggest WSL season yet. Uh, it's still a very young competition, but it's been making incremental strides um, year on year. And I think the fact that you've got now such a competitive landscape at the top end, where it's, it, it's not just... Chelsea and Arsenal, Manchester United look very strong. City are clearly very much in that conversation. So you've got at least four very good teams who can really go at each other head to head. And and I think the, the points the points difference might be very, very small by the end. Um, and to, I think at least two of those teams will not get into the Champions League, which, which adds another level of jeopardy into it all. So it does feel like the the domestic game's getting stronger. It will be a, a pretty slow on, ongoing process, I think, especially when you're talking about building up the numbers of fans that are actually in stadiums. But it, it all does seem to be trending in a positive direction. And Liam, what is the expectations on Emma Hayes and the team for this year? They've been at the pointy end of the competition for a while now. Is there a genuine expectation for the title for this team and this group again? Yeah, I think they expect to win the league every year. Um, and it's not because they don't respect the other teams, but I think that's just the, the culture that Emma Hayes has established there. They they won't be looking at the league thinking, oh, we lost Penilla Harder, Magda Eriksson, two, two big personalities in the squad. Maybe we take a step back this year. No way. Um, you know, I think Emma Hayes is very, very happy with the strength of her squad overall. They've made some smart additions. In, in in the off season, and I think I think they they feel in a good position to to retain that title. Um, but clearly, going into every season with Chelsea women, the the big one, the Holy Grail, is the Champions League, and I think that is always the balance of not taking their eye off the ball in the Premier League, because as we've mentioned, the the margin for error is small with the teams they're competing with, but also looking at that Champions League and thinking. It, it could well be Chelsea and Barcelona as the two outstanding outstanding teams in Europe um, this season. So uh, 
that that will be goal number one. Um, but I, th- I think they, they are still looking at the WSL as minimum expectation is to win it. Well, when you've won it as many times as Chelsea have, uh, uh, it's no surprise that uh, that Emma Hayes uh, has that expectation. And with the lineup, even despite the departure of some of those big names you mentioned, um, they are a team that uh, that ought to be uh, at least at the very uh, top end of, of the conversation every time it's had. Hey, Liam, always good to chat to you. Um, I only went to Stamford Bridge once in my travels, but it was a memorable day, just an amazing place uh, uh, to, to visit a cathedral of football, old school cathedral in its own right and in, uh, in in an era where so many mega stadiums exist um it's um it just feels like a, a, a football uh, pilgrimage when when you go to that place and um, it, it uh, you know as much as it pains me as a liverpool supporter and edge as an arsenal man uh, to 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 see uh chelsea sort of riding the ship after such a a wobbly period uh, uh, the top flight uh, is doing well when the men's team is well, and when the women's team uh, continues to do what they do, it's uh, it's just that uh, you know incredible uh, uh, vibe around uh, around that club uh, that um, that few can match. Yeah, it's, and it's always a fun club to cover because when they're not mm. when they're not falling apart, they're generally competing for trophies <laughs> with not much in between. <laughs> always a story for a journal, eh, Liam? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thanks again for joining us. Um, we'll, we'll talk to you again um, in a little while, mate. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. Liam Toomey from The Athletic. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk World Cups uh, and destinations of World Cups next on Boxbox. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Yeah. We talk about flavour-packed meals on this show every week, don't we, boys? We do indeed. Well, 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 Exactly. You don't need to look any further than your herbs and spices from our good friends at Hoyt's with his... Uh, what's the young Caputo's first name, Willem, that um, that did, did well for Manchester? Maxi. Maxi Is Caputo. it Max? Maximilian? Maximus probably, or Maximus? I reckon it would probably be Massimo. That, that's Massimo. what I reckon it would you think be. think it would be? Yeah. So my recipe for this week is a, a Korean spicy pork dish. Um, we all like uh, spicy meals, don't we? Indeed. Okay, so get some pork Willem's scotch about to get some in Thailand with me. Oh, yes, you are heading over there shortly. Uh, and vegetable oil, some garlic, fresh, like your fresh veggies, garlic, onion, carrots, and some spring onions. But then you want to get some sesame seed, your Hoyt's sesame seeds, to uh, to add some flavour. So you stir-fry all those veggies and the pork with a, a grated zest of a lemon and, uh, and a good tablespoon of Hoyt's sesame seeds. Make some steamed rice and then a spicy marinade. This is Korean style. Get the Hoyt's dried chicken chili, uh, a good, uh, well, however much you like, depending on what sort of heat you like, and then some Hoyt's ginger, powdered ginger, and then uh, and then mix it up with some soy sauce, sugar, white sugar, and sesame oil. You'll make a lovely sauce. You'll get the best Korean pork stir fry you can possibly imagine. Get them at your Coles or worse, and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chatting with Liam Toomey. You just now, uh, Steph Brands before him, but... Yeah, Willem, you mentioned off the top the the big story of of the the World Cups uh, being announced for for the next cycle following the uh, the twenty twenty six World Cup, and uh, it doesn't feel like it's going to be good news for for Australia, does it? 
No, I think Australia are probably out of the uh, the reckoning before uh, a formal bid could even have been submitted. Rob, this is in regards to the 2034 Men's World Cup. That comes as a trickle down from the big news, the confirmed news this week, that six nations are going to host the 2030 event. Spain, Portugal and Morocco are the co-hosts. Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay uh, are going to host the first three matches. So that South American involvement pays homage to the centenary of the first World Cup played in Uruguay. So, uh, yeah, instead of making a decision between the two edge, uh, they've uh, they've sat on the fence and said they could all jump in. So 48 teams, six countries, three continents, five time zones, two seasons, uh, given the uh, the Southern and the Northern Hemispheres both involved. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, as someone who's worked at eight FIFA World Cups of the women's and men's variety and has the challenge of organising logistics for people, Give me a break, Gianni. I mean, fair income, six countries I've got to cover with all sorts of logistical planning. Having said that, it is um, just a further evolution in the World Cup and the globalisation of international football. And I think what's a really lovely touch is that match in Uruguay to open the tournament uh, 100 years on from the very first one. So that'll be an exciting night. All of those teams qualify, funnily enough. So it makes a bit of a hash of South American qualification. It means there's only three spots up for grabs. Um, And obviously, um, all the European teams qualify too. And what's interestingly enough, uh, Willem, what does it mean for Australia? Uh, We put our hand up to consider a bid for 2034. I would forget about it. We need to build stadiums. I think Australia doesn't have the appetite for building stadiums. I don't think Victoria has any money. They would need to build a stadium. And um, uh, so on the basis of all of that, I think we'll be going to Saudi Arabia in 2034. Yeah, so I'm heading off, off the back of that announcement of the Six Nations, Rob. FIFA invited the OFC AFC or the nations within those two confederations to uh, put forward uh, bids for the 2034 Men's World Cup and Saudi Arabia. Uh, are as in-the-box seat as you could possibly imagine. AFC President Sheikh Salman has said they'll stand in support of Saudi Arabia's momentous initiative uh, and that they are, the AFC, are committed to working closely with the global football family to ensure the Saudi bids success. Sounds like they've got some friends in high places there. Uh, Football Australia, I guess what we could take from this is that James Johnson uh, didn't acknowledge that directly, but he did say, uh, as he had previously stated, that the 2034 World Cup, but also the 20. 29 uh, Club World Cup could be within there, uh, thinking that might be more the go from this point forward. Yeah, well, I guess all you, you can hope for is that uh, that real change does occur as a result. It uh, feels like we're, we're, you know, we're beating against a, a drum in a, in a vacuum uh, to, to hope for that. Uh, the uh, conversations were obviously had around Qatar at, at similar levels. And ultimately, uh, you know, I don't recall talking to Tracy Holmes and, and she was quite the advocate for, you know, was a leading voice in, in international sport and as a female that, uh, that she was happy ultimately with the way that Qatar was represented. On the flip side, Craig Foster, um, and w- when we last had him on the show and talked about this, uh, he, he did uh, make some concessions that, that Saudi Arabia was uh, making attempts to head in the right direction, but he wasn't complimentary at all uh, of the, the potential for, for the Saudi Arabia uh, decision to, to, to just be presented as a fait accompli. But it seems like they've got it 
boxed in nicely that the that FIFA have allowed a very limited amount of time for other nations to bid uh, that Saudi Arabia as Ed you would tell us have, have locked in votes across the African continent and throughout Asia uh, that uh, we've learnt from past experience that uh, that this would be an absolute waste of money and time if we were to go up against them. Well interesting Rob we talk a lot about um, viewing the Arab world through the western lens and the um how often people in the Arab world um, believe that the Western lens is discriminatory. Um, there's one thing, you know, the, the, um, the 1990s and uh, the 2000s were the time when Asian football exploded. Um, I'm very well qualified to talk about this. Arab world football is currently going through a growth phase similar to the what the Asians did in that period of time. It is the fastest growing um uh, market for football in the world. Uh, there's 350 million people live in the Arab world. That's a very significant market and it's growing exponentially. And I think that people in Western countries need to accept that and understand the power that currently sits within the Arab world for football and the emergence of very significant opportunities for FIFA. So, you know, those words aren't going to be heard well by a lot of Australians who have uh, views, political views about what happens in the Arab world, but it is a reality. And um, ultimately, you know, this is what's coming down the pipeline. And um, uh, like you said, Rob, maybe fighting it is futile. Yeah, and and look, as we record, we're we're recording in, in the shadows of uh, of the Hamas attacks on Israel, and uh, and it's easy to conflate everything to do with the Middle East uh, into one bundle when common sense demands that you can't, despite what your personal views are on Saudi Arabia. But it's uh, it's unfortunately not a good time for for these sorts of stories to to be. Um, in the public space and um, and look at just I guess we just hope and pray that um, ultimately that uh, that with the world spotlight on a, on a country like Saudi Arabia that uh, you know that equality rights uh, women's rights um, um, gay lesbian and uh, LGBTQI rights etc um, are recognised and um, and and allowed to uh, to take their their rightful place in the world I think we'll deal with this at length on another occasion it's probably a story that's a, a little bit bigger than uh, than our uh, little World Cup corner spot demands. So um, why don't we just park that, put a pin in it for the time being, and we'll pick it up over the next few weeks, Edge. Yes, Rob. We'll talk about that again many, many times as the uh, world spotlight descends on Saudi Arabia's uh, snooker bid for the 2034 FIFA World Cup. Well, we'll regroup in a couple of days' time anyway to talk stoppage time. Maybe we'll come up there. Well done, well done. Thank you, guys. Good to chat. Looking forward to stoppage time later in the week and then the Socceroos beyond that big week coming up. Absolutely. A good friend, Adam Maloney, taking over the chair. And I want to acknowledge our mate, Damien Tardio, who's uh, who's stepped aside uh, for the time being. He's been doing a wonderful job over recent years, helping us through the COVID times, uh, preparing our show, panel operating it, recording it in some pretty trying circumstances, uh, various times at his apartment, in our houses, in remote studios. So to Damien Tardio, our mate who, uh, who is the panel operator at the 3AW Breakfast and Morning Programs, a big thank you. But uh, to Adam Maloney, who uh, is uh, an absolute super star uh, in this role has uh, has um, joined us for uh, the full-time role so thanks to you Adam for your uh, work this week and uh, in advance ongoing and to you our friendly listeners if you have a moment please leave us a review wherever you listen to your favorite shows and make sure you subscribe to box to box stoppage time and offside 
Tweet us at Vox to Box NTS and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.